the very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is the whole state of things, pure violence without object. This is the typical violence of Violence because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to this week's edition of the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins as always, sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we begin today's discussion, we do want to mention we've got a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Consider tossing us a buck a month there. And if not, maybe leave us an awesome review on iTunes. Either way, we appreciate you guys for listening. Today, we're going to be having a look at a couple of essays on transference. Two from Freud, including Freud's The Dynamics of Transference, observations on transference love and a piece from lacan titled intervention on transference i don't know about you but i feel like the lacan we'll probably, maybe we'll probably we save may, that for when we do dora i think so as well since it really is more intimately dealing with that particular case and uh i think it kind of draws away from some you know what i mean because there's a lot of like the kind of dialectical relationship of the analyst analyzand and the unconscious conscious and so forth doesn't really fit within the bounds of what we have kind of like coalesced around in terms of our our reading. Right, right. I, I think that that's right. Uh, I think I was, I thought that it would be a more general piece yeah. when I first was like reading through it, but it really is a reading of Dora. So yeah, let's just focus on the dynamics of the transference and the observations on transference love, which is uh, respectively 1912 and 1915. So it's interesting that, you know, one of my favorite quotes from Lacan, and I often use that as a meme, as the quote, transference is love. Yeah. And Freud, uh, in that essay, that 1915 essay that we read for today, Observations on Transference Love, he, at least the translators, it may be just one word in German that he's making, I'd have to look. But in the English, translation it's it's hyphenated right so transference love is it's almost that hyphen we can read it as as an equal sign if you want to think about it that way so i don't think freud would necessarily uh disagree i think that's kind of pretty clear that freud would agree sort of based on what he says now he says that i think freud absolutely kind of acknowledges the sort of libidinality of the of the psychoanalytic treatment the situation yeah. And the challenge he notes is like, like you've said in our discussions about this reading is, it's not so much like the actual sort of cure aspect, that performance, but it's more about the difficulty being transference, primarily due to unconscious resistance to the treatment itself, which I thought was a really interesting, like, definitely not something that you would like commonsensically come to, right? That that this kind of infantile love would be a sort of resistance to the cure 
that the right. unconscious is throwing up as you like get closer and closer to let's say the traumatic kernel or what have right. you. I would reiterate what you said very in the way in which Freud's kind of saying when you start doing psychoanalysis as an analyst, you might think the hardest thing is interpreting dreams, symptoms, slips, right? But the real hard part is dealing with the the transference. And that seems, I mean, for Freud, it kind of seems like that is the difficulty. That's the, he kind of uses this metaphorical language. That's the battlefield where the cure is lost or won, it is on the ground of transference. And it's interesting, I guess we can start with a preliminary definition that's very general, and then we can contrast that a little bit with what Freud seems to be doing in these two essays, because I think I told you this, that he first uses the term transference in 1895 in the co-authored book Studies on Hysteria, and he also will use the term transference in the interpretation of dreams. And it's there where transference really seems more like the literally transferring of intensity of affect from unconscious ideas, you know, the, the affect associated with unconscious ideas, like cathects, if you will, or intensifies pre-conscious. Really, it's like the day's residues right in terms of the dream at least in interpretation of dreams when he's thinking about why is it that the the dream kind of framework representatively is always incorporating these residues from the day before in our waking life and um, he will kind of hypothesize that it's precisely because these little details that that weren't really significant in our day-to-day -day life, like the tree that we walked by earlier, going to the parking lot or something that forms a kernel of the dream. Why, why a residue? And it's for him, it's that because that image or that kernel was not libidinally invested. So it's free to make all of these new right. associations. Gotcha. Okay. And it's also, that's fucking uh, interesting. That's fucking interesting, man. <laughs> And it's also the fact that since it's from the day before, there also hasn't been enough time for associations to flourish with these residues. So they are kind of virgin soil for the dream to coalesce around. But in any case, so in these early uses of transference, we're not really getting to the level at which it will be strictly, at least for Freud, strictly confined to a kind of interpersonal relationship between the analyst and the patient, where the patient is, as you were saying, you know, taking infantile complexes or the sort of uh, the intensities associated with those complexes, and the analyst becomes uh, a kind of substitute for the feelings directed at them from these complexes. So for Freud, because it's a familial thing always and it's infantile material, it's a father substitute that right. the analyst is usually playing. He does say it could be a mother image, it could be a brother, but for the main, I think for Freud, the analyst, at least in general, in, in Freudian theory, is gonna be kind of like reproducing, I would say a parent, but, Right. So if the analyst is a male, it's kind of it's a father 
the father imago. So you're kind right. of embodying the person of the father and replacing them unconsciously. So would you yeah. say that, because you mentioned, yeah. I think the residue, like I kind of latch onto that as it's almost like this residue of the infantile Oedipal structure of desire that allows the transference, like it's that is what allows the transference to kind of, I don't know, be libidinally invested or whatever to yeah. take that substitute position. Kind of like you mentioned that the tree, the tree and the analyst sort of are both freed up, right? In a certain, they have a similar relation in that way, right? Or am I? It, 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 I, I think you're see right. what I'm getting at. I think you're right from the point of view of the infantile material. Yes, right. it has. Yeah, yeah. It, now it has virgin soil and the analyst to use the analyst as a cover, which gets back to something you said earlier, which we'll talk about about how the transference and resistance form an alliance in the working through of symptoms. The other thing would be, in a certain sense, the session itself, whether it be an hour, two hours, whatever. I mean, in the Freudian situation, classically, the, the Freud is seated behind the patient on a couch who's free associating, right? Say anything is the mantra. Right. So in a certain sense, what's interesting too is that the person of the analyst becomes a part of the day's residue right for let's just say the dream work at night the most significant part of someone's day potentially could be being at the at the therapist's uh, office and having the analytic work so in that sense there's always going to be a kind of ability for the person of and this is freud's language the person of the analyst to sort of be um, invested and to have those kind of unconscious wishes translated into feelings of affection and love and whatnot. Two things before we, I, I throw it back to you. One would be, I think that it's important to note that even if Freud often stresses transference as basically situated in the analytic situation, that's obviously what psychoanalysis is, is interested in, right? This dialogical relation between the analyst and the analyzan, we could also see very clearly that generalizing from this, you can see this at work in other types of relationships, like a teacher and a student right, yeah. or a confessor and a priest or, you know, someone making a confession and whatever. There's these bonds of confidence that are solidified. And so I think that, you know, like we've talked about in our discussions of anti-Oedipus, we could see that there is a kind of general transference in all social relationships, right. but particularly heightened and singularized in this kind of relationship, especially if we consider from Freud's point of view, the analyst is kind of stepping in and taking on a father role, right? So there's going to be Oedipal conflicts, Hamlet's yeah. going to going to demur whether or not to kill the person of the analyst or to want to fuck him, whatever. One thing, I'll give you the definition in from the vocabulary of psychoanalysis or from the language of psychoanalysis by um, LaPlante and Pontelis. I'll show you how general the definition they give of transference is because they say it's one of the most difficult to um, define. They say, for psychoanalysis, transference is a process of actualization of unconscious wishes. Transference uses specific objects and operates in the framework of a specific relationship established 
with these objects. Its context par excellence is the analytic situation. In the transference, infantile prototypes reemerge and are experienced with a strong sensation of immediacy. As a rule, what psychoanalysts mean by the unqualified use of the term transference is transference during treatment. Classically, the transference is acknowledged to be the terrain on which all the basic problems of a given analysis play themselves out. The establishment modalities, interpretation, and resolution of the transference are, in fact, what define the cure. So the actualization of wish fulfillment is a very, very basic and general definition of transference. Even though I think when Freud is talking about, especially in the essays we have for the day, Freud is trying to elaborate transference specifically as this necessary and obligatory development on the part of the patient of these feelings of love. And he even says falling in love with the analyst. So the definition I just read from the language of psychoanalysis really tried to kind of make it the most general because I think if we extrapolate then that the feeling of falling in love with that the patient has for the uh, the analyst and generally unconscious, but perhaps could be new shit could be brought to light, especially if the analyst is able to be honest, as Freud always says you should be, and be like, hey, you know, what we have here is, is a feeling of love on your part for, for me. But Freud says it's a, it's a natural, it's not only owing to the neuroses itself, it's also owing to the analytic situation that transference love arises. And he says it's not based on any charms of the, the analysts. So don't, don't get conceited and think that you've uh, sort of won love based on your charisma. It's just, it's a process of, this process of, of, of trying to work through this unconscious material brings about transference love and generally, as you already mentioned, Freud thinks that, in fact, it's both a tool in the analyst toolbox, because it has to be sort of used, obviously, in a very moderate ethical way, because the technique demands it, not just for morality's sake, but you can't cure your patient by fucking them, is basically what he's saying, right? But on the other hand, he thinks that it's that transference is actually a mode of resistance at the same time on the on behalf of the patient. It's with the analyst always keeping this in mind, though, that this is why the battle is fought. The cure is won at the price of working through transferences because it's like it's continually cropping up and using as we get closer to the, as you said, the traumatic kernel, the unconscious complexes, the ideas and its derivatives that are being repressed, et cetera, et cetera. The transference is a way of resisting that movement. And that's part of the paradox we can maybe unravel as we continue talking about uh, these two papers. For me, the biggest point that jumped out after reading this, these two essays from Freud in particular, was going back to anti-Oedipus and the statements they make about 
the social already being suffused with desire and that kind of being their argument against sublimation per se, which Freud, I think, even sort of nods to in the way that he talks about, which you mentioned as well, that transference is also present in these other sort of relationships, but it's sort of disavowed, perhaps you might say. Um, right. It's not really like called out the way that it is in psychoanalysis. And maybe, too, there could be something just like the intimacy of the analytic situation as well, kind of maybe opens right. up something about that intimacy as well, like intensifies that as well as the unconscious resistance aspect. But, you know, one thing I was just thinking about was how that actually displays itself. I was thinking back to being in like junior high even elementary and like having the Freudian slip of calling the teacher mom. I don't know if you ever had this happen. Not that it's just not that very specific thing, but I'm sure if I really thought back and tried to remember a situation like that, I'm sure something along the same lines perhaps has happened before. Yes, ma'am. But saying yes, having the slip of saying yes, mom. Oh, I see. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Which I literally just thought of that. So I think that kind of goes to this point about transference being present, right? That's a definitely an unconscious manif manifestation of this, the infantile kind of regression to the Oedipal, so to speak. So no, of course, I mean, you're, you're totally right. I mean, in the same way that our parents are from the very start educating us, like, for example, how to control our bodily sphincters so that we don't piss and shit ourselves in public everywhere the educator is continuing some of that upbringing and directing it in different right. ways usually to form us into to good obedient workers and all that right so i think that that is a good example precisely of uh how it can be generalized outside the analytic situation and freud himself too when he thinks about other medical means of treating neuroses whether it be in sanatoriums or he doesn't say asylum, but I think he's thinking of just more general institutions where certain non-psychoanalytic techniques would be used to cure a neurotic. I mean, he's talking about how even their transference arises, but it's not so much the primary battlefield. A lot of times it either comes to the point where the patient can become immensely or fully just subjected just dependent i would say right on the doctor which is not a cure that's kind of even a, a new problem or in the case because for freud transference can be positive or negative the positive would be the obviously um sort of the erotic sexualization of the the the, the falling in love but there can be that can also be negative. It can be the opposite type of passion, or at least the the diametrical opposite in terms of the passion of, of hatred. And in other situations, that would mean that the, the patient would have to break off from the doctor, or the doctor seeing the patient fully in love with them has to break it off for ethical concerns for whatever. And I think for Freud, he's like, look, psychoanalysis is unique in, in that the analyst knows very well that these feelings, positive or negative, are going to be aroused and displaced, transferred, if you will, onto the analyst as 
the cure, the cathartic or talking cure goes on. So I think that that makes it different. The transference that he's wanting to isolate, the psychoanalytic transference, makes it unique compared to these other situations. And part of it is, is what you're saying too, where it's it's an intimate situation. It's it's quote unquote one on one. Where resistance comes in, interestingly, one of the reasons I already gave one of the reasons where you're, you know, it's it's a shield as you're trying to uncover that traumatic kernel, as you said, that get to the heart of the symptoms and bring them to consciousness. There is almost a shield of of the love situation becomes more important libidinally than doing that, right? The, the repressed wants to stay repressed, if you will, right? But the other thing is the very fact that now the analyst has to work through the transference with the patient and there's resistance on the part that the unconscious wishes that are attempted to be actualized deal with the person of, of the analyst who's trying to help them work through it. Right. So there's already a kind of interesting um, conflict that it then becomes, you know, the very person who's trying to help them through their shit is the one towards which their shit is directed. Right. So it's, it becomes a kind of uh, a tricky situation. And I think that's why Freud admits in a case history that we'll look at at some point, the Dora case that he hadn't realized sufficiently what he will come to call transference in the analytic situation. He fucked up the transference. And I think that to a certain extent, he fucked it up because there's one term we haven't mentioned yet, although I think you alluded to it when you said Lacan is dealing with a kind of dialectical understanding of transference, which is precisely that transference isn't one way, as we've been saying. I, I've been continually kind of using Freud's way of looking at things as though transference is only coming from the patient towards the analyst. We have to admit dialectically that there is also transference from the analyst to the patient or what Freud will call counter-transference, which he doesn't really say as much at all about compared to what he says about transference, but he at least acknowledges its existence and we can roughly think of countertransference as sort of all the um, prejudices, motivations, passions of the analyst with regard to the person of the patient. One of which could be simply the desire to cure. The desire to cure could become such a, you know, fixed idea, such a passionate goal that it that it becomes obsessive, that itself becomes pathological. We always talk about like, you know, doctors having God complexes, right? Wanted to, wanted to cure everybody. So you can see like, this is why Freud himself too warns about like our desire to cure patients can't pass a certain threshold. We have to retain that kind of equanimity, you know, that, that neutrality, that uh, objectivity, because our very desire to cure the patient could become a stumbling block, an obstacle. But in any case, yeah, I think Freud admits when he first kind of understands how the transference is kind of an in inevitable in the situation. In the Dora case, he realized he, he had not handled it well. That's at least what he says at the time of writing the case history up. 
1905, whereas he'll add some notes in 1923 where he says, you know, maybe I fucked up the case because I didn't understand her homosexual tendencies, blah, blah, blah. But in any case, I do think that um, Freud's honesty and saying, hey, egg on my face, I fucked up, gave us, it probably gave him a lot of time to reflect on what could I have done differently. And I think it, it motivates him more and more to see transference, not just as a kind of contingency, right? He thinks it's necessary and inevitable. And that's why these two papers are more or less technical. They're for the training of other analysts, but at the same time, they hold a lot of theoretical interest. To go back to my discussion of the slip with regard to a teacher, I think there's a certain position like the displacement with regard to kind of the edipality this would more so happen, I think. This more so happened, at least for me personally, in kind of that maybe junior high, um, huh? elementary age versus like high school. That I mean, I'm sure that it's happened, right? Like there's probably plenty of other people, but I feel like for me, that was more so the case where I suppose it would almost go back to like, I forget the specific term or way this is discussed by Deleuze and Guattari with regard to, um, gosh. What was it? It was like the way that the unconscious doesn't know like proper name or like the unconscious wouldn't sort of understand. They would understand care, like even going back to Wolfman, right? The nurses or the like governess or whatever, like the people that were sort of looking after the Wolfman, right? Almost like a transferential relationship there as well. This position of care or instruction or like authority that a teacher per se and like a doctor would have, would sort of share, right? Like they would sort of share certain right. characteristics that are very similar. And the unconscious wouldn't necessarily like, this is a doctor, this is a, a teacher, this is whatever, but it would fall back onto that, the infantile Oedipal aspect. You know what I mean? There's that position of care, I think, is the important uh, I think connection between them. I think you're hitting on something where I would say it seems from the Wolfman case we did, by the way, for new listeners, we've done three episodes on the Wolfman two years ago, two and a half years ago. In any case, one of the most interesting and longest case histories. But I would say just from like remembering the way in which Freud lays out the case history, it seems as though his nurse the one who threatens him with castration for whipping his little penis out and peeing on the, on the rug. It seems as though he is being cared for more directly for people who aren't the parents, which is why Freud talks about, at least in a certain period of his writing, when he's thinking about Oedipus, when he's thinking about parental relations in the family, he says, he always says something like the mother or her substitute. And so the substitute mother of, of the nurse, the caregiver, she seems to be the, it seems like with the wolf man, there are, there are caregivers who are much more primary caregivers than the mother and father in this bourgeois Victorian household. So I think that your point is right, that it doesn't necessarily have to be obviously a biological father or mother. 
we kind of know that by common sense, I think. But it's good to point out that when Freud is talking about, he takes the term from you, when he says that the analyst in the transference takes on the father imago, right? The imago being almost a kind of like constellation of traits and a kind of representative or even like a, a sort of delegate of the personality or personhood of the global person of, in this case, father, in your case, mother with the teacher. So it is interesting that it doesn't have to be obviously a biological mother or father around which our infantile complexes form compulsive, repetitive object choice investments. You know, because my parents were divorced and I didn't live with my mother. So it was almost like right. the relationship to the teacher is sort of more intimate or, you know, there's immediate. more. It's, yeah, exactly. It's more immediate than the relationship to my own mother. Just such a fascinating little connection that I just thought of. It's great grist for the mill. We could say I had totally and, and repressed just... that memory too. Like I, I, <laughs> it just kind of Wait. popped up as we start to, isn't that interesting? Like, in the process of free associating about transference that yeah. this sort of, I don't know if it's a repressed memory per se, but like it may, perhaps, it, you know, it just bubbles up from the unconscious. That's kind of like a interesting little, like sort of fractal element to, I don't know. So it's, a, it's very meta. It's very meta. Yeah, right? exactly. This is turning into a, a therapy session. <laughs> right. With, uh, <laughs> Mr. Cooper, tell me all tell the me. things about your mother. Tell me about your mother. <laughs> like How does that make runner. you feel? Right. Yeah, exactly. A turtle is dying in the desert. What are you doing? The um, contest, yes. Or what? It's, it's the turtle is like overturned on its shell or something like that. Yeah. All of this is good. I think we, we hit we hit some of the basic notes. I'm trying to think of some singular little points in these essays that are, are really interesting to me just off the top of my head. But one of them, I think that's important. I can't find a way to articulate it in the best way, but he says this interesting thing uh, towards the beginning of the dynamics essay where he's like, look, if someone is not getting that gratification, I think that's the word he's using, of having their needs for loving and being loved fulfilled in external reality, every new person on the scene kind of provides an ample opportunity for that gratification deprived person to like almost try out their, they become a good target, a good occasion for trying to have those needs met. And I think that that's a really interesting, what's interesting about it is, again, that's a very general statement, making transference seem like a part of any social relation. But I think that the two, it's it's particular to the fact that I think for Freud, it's neurotics. And I think he means that very broadly. That can include obsessionals, hysterics, whatever. Because when Freud says neurotic, it's much broader, I think, than, than we use it in everyday language. But in any case, he calls them the psychoneuroses, right? So it's in the it's in the psychoneuroses that for Freud one of the chief things that that we're trying to cure this person of is this inability to find 
or to achieve gratification, to actualize that gratification in reality. And I know we had to put like scare quotes around reality, the external world. It's tough, right? But I think that he means it very distinctly from, say, in fantasy, in, in unconscious processes. He, he will, at least at this point, kind of roughly, he's being general and he's trying to move quickly. It's not a dense paper, but he, you know, he's trying to set up this opposition between you know, um, gratifying or our, our, our need for love in external reality versus these repetitions in unconscious life that are stymieing our ability to form meaningful relationships, et cetera. All the, I mean, you can fill in the blank about what is kind of fucking up someone's ability to, to function successfully in the world. I think that that's a good, that, that I only emphasize this part to point back to why the analyst becomes so invested in, right? This is a, a person who's coming into our life to quote unquote fix us or help us fix ourselves. So they're a new important personages, they're a new important person from the start. And if we're dealing with neurotics and they aren't able to actualize those, gratify that drive for love, it makes very much sense that the analyst will fill in that void. Absolutely. And, and I want to read this quote from the text because I think it underscored your point directly, particularly about the ambivalence of, of feelings. The ability of neurotics to make the transference a form of resistance is most easily accounted for by ambivalence in the flow of feelings, where the capacity to transfer feeling has come to be of an essentially negative order, as with paranoids, the possibility of influence or cure ceases. But I think the key line was that ambivalence. Yes. You didn't, I don't think you characterize it as ambivalence directly, but I think that's, I think, right, you were kind of, I mean, would you agree that? I haven't brought that up yet, so I'm really glad that you brought up ambivalence, which I forget. It's one of the guys he quotes at the very beginning of the papers. I think it's Stakel or Strakel. I have to look. He also calls it bipolarity. I think ambivalence is better. And it has the status of a concept in Freud. But you're right. It's that ambivalence is a good way of characterizing transference in general, because as I said, in general, transference can be either more positive or more negative. And it can obviously oscillate, particularly in the fact that if every patient is inevitably bound to fall in love with the analyst, kind of as Freud says, I'm not really messing up his terms, it's weird to think of, but transference love, they're also bound to be gently, but firmly rebuffed and not have those feelings reciprocated. And so it's very, you can imagine how often or how much some of the resistance to would be this feeling of unrequited love on the part of the patient that could very well be easily used as a means of breaking off treatment, right? Which would again, reinforce and keep the repression under lock and key, keep it going, perpetuating itself. So, right. I mean, there's, there's bound to be, um, 
Ambivalence is a great way of characterizing the resistance inherent to transference. It's always going to be an unrequited love unless, you know, what did we say yesterday? Someone like Lacan in his 80s sleeping with a young patient, right? Unless, unless the analyst is French, no. For technical reasons and obviously for ethical moral reasons, the transference cannot be taken in that direction. I mean, Freud says it very clearly, like the doctor may fulfill his patient's desire, which is for the analyst to reciprocate those feelings of love, but the analyst will never successfully fulfill his own desire, which is to cure someone of their of their neurosis or at least to alleviate it to a point where they can, you know, function well. I'm going to derail us with this little line of thought, but I think this is an interesting contribution here. I was thinking back to Schraber in particular with this and with regard to I guess the transference appearing in these other sort of relationships where obviously like I'm and of course I'm thinking back to Fleshig, right? Because yeah. Fleshig, Schraber's wife, right? She they had like a little sort of not a shrine per se, but they had a photo or something. Uh well, Flesh, Fleshig's uh, wife, Fleshig. yeah, had a had a photo of our Schraber's sorry. wife. Schraber's wife had a photo of Fleshig on I guess her desk or her vanity, right? Which has got to be kind of a weird thing, you know, um, for Schraber. But it's like that it goes back to that position of sort of of care in a sense, but almost like a even becomes a sort of example of maybe negative transference with regard to Schraber in the sense of the way that he begins to view Fleshig as this sort of adversary. Like at first, he does sort of take on the position of this kind of like father figure yes and there's a certain like you said the gratitude of of Schraber's wife etc but even to go a, a bit further afield i think there's something interesting dealing with the way that jung is referenced here with regard to these archetypes that would predate the family god or i forget what the other two examples and I'll let you continue. Uh, I just no, feel like ahead, you're please. talking about when when Deleuze and Guattari and anti Oedipus. Oh, right, right. Up, Sorry, not Freud. Bring up, bring up how for Freud, it always seems like the analyst is taking the place of the father for the patient. Whereas Jung's like, actually, man, uh, a lot of times in my transferences, I appear as a demon, a sorcerer, a god, right? It's not necessarily familial. Um, right. And in fact, Deleuze Guattari argue, and I don't know for sure, but I, I don't know why I would they would make this up, where this is one of the points that drives Jung and Freud apart. I think obviously the other part is where Jung is not thinking of the libido as sexual, in right. at least primarily sexual in nature. Anyway, go on. So you were talking about Schraber. Obviously, Schraber's paranoia helped to make the transference negative but you were talking about Schreiber's relationship with with fleshing doesn't he kind of become this sort of tormentor figure oh yeah not only that but even this i guess it would be an interesting contrast right because of the sort of libidinal investment between Schreiber and and the god that wants to impregnate him right yeah i mean that's kind of an interesting little 
diversion with regard to this in the way that I guess the social is already infused with this with libido if you're tracking what I'm getting at there's a way in which on the one hand fleshing is like a, a kind of lower lesser god but then there's this more omnipotent omnipresent god as you were saying that is that Schraber has to be ready to sexually please at any point including this journey of becoming woman in order to give birth to a new humanity etc cetera, etc cetera, right which is all part of the the schizoid delusions but for Deleuze and Guattari what I just said puts the emphasis on the wrong aspect because for them these are not first and foremost delusions that is a kind of psychological overcoating of the very fact that this is a becoming it's a it is an intense feeling it's uh if it's a delirium the delirium is first and foremost felt and not first and foremost a mental idea however erroneous it may be so this feeling of becoming woman this feeling of fucking god this feeling of becoming say a new kind of virgin mary christ type figure that's going to be sacrificed but also give birth immaculately to to a new race of to repopulating the earth right that's first and foremost a feeling in terms of transference it's interesting but i assume that some of this ambivalence let's say because he is a schraber is even ambivalent about his relationship with god he kind of decries it as this torment but yet necessary um but he also says some disparaging things about god that one can imagine is also applicable to fleshing his doctor when he's talking about god doesn't know shit about the living he only knows about the dead except in cases of spectacular men like myself straber has to get over the paradox of well if god doesn't have truck with with the living how is it that he's fucking you and i'm a very important person so i think that that type of thing can apply to fleshig where it's like fleshig doesn't really understand living beings it's only when things are dissected and and dead and and you can break it apart that you can understand it like a, a typical critique of men of science you see from like Leotard and Nietzsche to obviously Schraber. So that right there is a kind of interesting in, in the delirium of his feelings and what becomes, we could say, knowledge about God and what God knows and what God doesn't know. That seems to be a kind of interesting slippage transference, if you will, in a very general sense between God and Fleshig. Yeah, and the kind of like the position of the master that the analyst sort of takes on right yeah well the the analyst as the um subject supposed to know right yeah exactly exactly that's which, kind of what i was thinking which the analyst can very much forget that he's not right um but the patient may come in with or may want to challenge right um because i mean freud talks about negative resistance on behalf of the transference a lot when he's like he's like hey when what was the footnote we read today but we but freud's saying in the case of resistance from male patients it's because they 
are sort of reenacting a kind of um, rebelliousness against the father, right? So the analyst steps in to be, all right, this is late in Freud's life. So he'll talk about the two problems, right? One is convincing a woman that her wish for a penis is not realizable. Oh, Freud, gotta, gotta love him. And then one is for, um, with men trying to convince them that a passive attitude to man to other men doesn't always signify castration that is indispensable in many relationships in life. The rebellious overcompensation of the male produces one of the strongest transference resistances. He refuses to, to subject himself to a father substitute or to feel indebted to him. We can see that some in, in the wolf man, but particularly in the rat man, I think when, um, the rat man has these fantasies, these ideas that Freud wants him as a son, that Freud is going to like put forth one of his daughters so that the rat man can marry into the family. Of course, Freud being less objective, by that I mean neutral than he normally is, pretty much lets us know that he's kind of disgusted by this fantasy. And he doesn't like this guy fucking at all. That's another great kind of typical example of how that could be not only obviously an indicator of confirming what Freud generally seems to think, whether or not he's wrong. Jung says he, he is to generalize like this, but Ratman look, takes him up as a father figure. There is an intense desire for Freud to reciprocate the kind of affection that the right man obviously feels. And third, I think that we can see that this is also a resistance in the very sense in which it's an obstacle to working through his obsessional issues. It's interesting, right? Like the work, the, the, the work and the working through of real issues that Freud thinks always stems back to infantile complexes and sort of, um, let's say a fixation on early object choices, that work has to be suspended or at least has to take on the shape, the form of the current transference issue going on. And so, you know, for, I think for Freud, he's like, look, you got to subtract out all of the, the present. So you got to subtract yourself from it. You got to cut away the effective ties based on this kind of love situation in which you should be left with. And I, I think I use the metaphor of sifting sand, right? You're trying to get the, the nuggets of gold. You're sifting out for what's left. And what's left is these, uh, you use traumatic kernel, which I think is great, but you at least need to sift out for the, the usable material that's relevant to these, uh, to the formations of these, these complexes. Now, at the beginning, I said that maybe <laughs> Lacan's dialectical discussion was maybe not that germane to kind of the discussion that we wanted to have. But I think maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I think this sort of sifting that you're talking about, this subtraction, right, is almost like that's kind of a negation if I'm maybe I'm being uh, too oh, fast sure. and loose with my no, no. with my yeah. understanding here. But I feel like maybe I'm onto something as far as like that. So that would be an example of the dialectical approach that Lacan goes into in his essay very much so very much so. i mean in the same way that um 
I'm just trying to give an example of, of the Dora case since that's what Lacan talks about. But, you know, when Dora comes to Freud and says, look, here's what happened. My father is sleeping with this other man's wife. That leaves me almost as compensation for this other man to make sexual advances to me. And everyone's telling me that the sexual advance he made to me didn't happen. And that I made it up because my father in particular wants to keep his affair going with this guy's wife. And Freud, his dialectical reversal is to say, okay, how is it that for so long you helped to keep this facade going? That you actually helped to enable your father to keep fucking this man's wife. So that's one of his reversals. And I think that you're very right in the working through the transference. You could very much, there's a kind of jujitsu move you got to do where it's like, okay, you're making this about me and you right now. And you're making about the this transference love situation right now. When in fact, you know, turn the mirror back on yourself and look at where these feelings actually originate from. I'm just the the vessel at the moment because I can be filled. I'm just the mirror that's really reflecting back at you some type of uh, earlier constitutive process. Usually Freud talks about like the formation of object choice. I think that's maybe too simplistic, but it's, you know. Um, so yeah, you you think you're in love with me. You're actually in love with your father. Let's explore that, right? So there is a kind of dialectical reversal. You're very much right. I don't know if this is going to make any sense, but I was even thinking about even to go to Marx, because you mentioned mirror. I don't know the if mirror production. Make... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of reminded me of like that kind of quote about how the the linen sees itself in the in the coat or some whatever right. that weird like yeah. mirror aspect of it. But maybe that's, it's that's just right. the dialectical relationship that is kind of what I'm glomming onto, I suppose. Or I think so. I think so. When we, when we talked to Thomas Nail about this, I mean, we discussed this very interesting phrase in dialectical fashion. It's precisely in this mirror exchange of, of valuations that commodities can not only come to kind of form let's say stable signifiers in the network of values, but also that there can be like the fallist, a transcendent term that can be used to become the overcoding abstract equivalent of all of them. Obviously very simplifying. And I just did a kind of Lacanian Syrian type explanation of, of Marx's point, but yes, I agree with in general, very much so this uh this equivalence that you're drawing and i think that zizek has made a career out of weaving together these figures that we're talking about lacan hegel marx freud we're stealing your shtick mr zizek so the rest of the material that i kind of have is predominantly just drawing on some of those really excellent quotes from anti-oedipus about sublimation and the social with regard to libidin you know libidinality or libidinal investment rather so i don't know if you have 
other, you know, more germane focused well, we were, discussion we were as to, far as yeah. this piece from Freud goes before we, you know, if we decide to go that route. But we were going to keep this short today. And so I would love to look at one or two maybe of those quotes with you. I, the one thing I wanted to say off the top of my head that I found fascinating from the dynamics piece. And obviously we haven't exhausted all the material, but we we kind of use them as a way to exemplify this concept in Freud and uh, to put it into motion. But the, the one thing that I find really interesting is where he uses this term. It's a term that I don't think really uh, works anymore in everyday English, but he talks about how transference plays off of well okay begins the essay by saying look everybody's sexual history if you will uh the individuality of their means of forming loving relationships is obviously contingent singular and it involves a whole slew of things based on their upbringing, their, uh, the events that occurred in their life, et cetera, et cetera, right? Very general statement. And then from that, he says, this individuality is like what he, he calls it a cliche or a stereotype. And he means both of those in the very literal sense of a kind of, it's a first printing, right? It's a first edition of stamping this sexual individuality onto let's say the the psychical apparatus or the course of the drives etc right so this is when he talks about these infantile imigos these constellations of fixations and object choices and blah 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 this whole individuality is stamped like a first printing of a book and he says in transference it's as though there are these facsimiles, there are these reprints going on. There are, with slight editing being uh, made, but it's, it's, a, it's a new, you know, it's a new publication, a new press that is very much of old material that's already been sort of stamped. And so I think that that's, that's something interesting to me is this metaphor of, um, of a kind of, as though there are just little footnotes added later, like Freud was very, very, uh, did very often adding these little footnotes, reprinting these older editions with slight variations on a theme. That's kind of his metaphor for what's going on in analysis. And that, you know, if you will, the, the analyst is is somewhat another footnote added to at this later edition in this reprint. And that what is important is trying to work back as you dialectically or or whatnot, trying to sift out, subtract, trying to recover or reproduce in the patient's consciousness in order to work through that material, these first printing stereotypes the first the plates trying to get get the get those first printing plates and call them up from their repressed or unconscious domain i just really like that uh that metaphor his his use of 
the printing process to describe, let's say, the machinery of the unconscious. We were trying to uncover the, so to speak, original designing machines. The problem is, and I think Deleuze and Guattari would say this very well, this might even be more of a Derridian thing, but there is no real original stereotype. There is no original printing plates. That itself is a kind of uh, ideal point. I think Freud he might even, if he pushed him on this, he might agree with this. But the way he makes it sound is as though, okay, at a certain point in infancy or whenever we've got a first printing, that's the origin. That's that's where primal repression occurs. That's where the unconscious can be traced back to as origin. But I think that that itself is a fiction and an ideal point, not anything that sort of can be found, which is what I think Freud starts to mean by constructions and analysis towards the end of his life, where to a certain extent, the origin itself has to be constructed, not just reconstructed, but like there is no origin to work back to. The origin has to be a part of the creation that the cure enacts. So hopefully some of that made sense. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think so. I feel like Noctroglokite kind of vibes yes. with what you just said. Exactly. The after effect, the after the fact, um, the afterwards sometimes is called. You're exactly right. It's And I think that that's why, I think that the metaphor that he's using of a first printing reprints is a way of dramatizing the idea of Noctroglokite. You're exactly right. It's only in the after effects that we can see the traumatic event. Right? So you could never really go back to it, even however much we try to reconstruct it. And Freud, that's the dialectic of, of fantasy and reality that Freud is always trying to find the line for, which is very sinuous and potentially deceiving right it explains his wavering on things like the seduction theory which he had abandoned by this time um seduction theory height is like 1895 to 1898 or, or so so last years of the 19th century where he's thinking that all of these neuroses have to be based in an actual event of molestation rape whatever it is and in general, he always thinks it's within the family or pretty adjacent to it, which would lead him to believe how widespread those kind of sexual assaults and improprieties would be. Because a lot of them are reported word for word firsthand by the patients he's dealing with. And then he comes to see that a lot of those are kind of confabulations, unconscious productions, fantasies. I'm sure some of his patients would have had real encounters, but it becomes a question specifically through the types of symptom formations, through the through the narrative itself. I think for Freud, this is one of the great things that I'll stop here, where Freud says, look, if a patient comes to you and you are given a general diagnosis that they're, they, they are having hysteric symptoms and they have a history, and then you're working through their memories 
sort of let's say leading up to the event they're you're getting their kate their broad outlines of their of their history if there are not these little gaps and amnesias that are characteristic of hysteria and it's a totally different thing and when there is a hysteric where there are where certain things are repeated and retold without gaps that's itself a kind of symptom of something where are the gaps in the discourse where are the their failures where are these little amnesias and paramnesias and that's a, a, a sign and a hint so i think that freud had to abandon the seduction theory precisely because he did not realize yet i mean he was still forming psychoanalysis so give him some credit but he had not realized yet this dialectic of of the real and the fantastical and uh, i think that that's also why he wasn't ready to deal with the transference because he had just jettisoned the seduction theory by the time he's seeing Dora. And it's with Dora that he realizes, fuck, I messed up the transference. I didn't understand it yet. And it's now what it's, it's almost 12, 15 years later that he's really putting down, again, not tragically kite this after the fact, right? That he's really appreciating the necessity, the essentiality of transference and trying to generalize it for the training of analysts. Say, don't worry, your patients may fall in love with you, but that's a part of the situation. Which Deleuze and Guattari want to say is fucking perverse. <laughs> Just to turn things on its head, since we're gonna have, uh, we'll have maybe spend another five, 10 minutes talking a little bit about what Deleuze and Guattari say in Anti-Oedipus about transference, which is by no means a lot, even if it, the word shows up 21 times, they, that's not a primary focus of theirs, but they do talk about it as this perverse artificial territoriality set up by Freud. It's, we're gonna, we're gonna transfer the familial territoriality to this perverse situation where, you know, if sexuality is the dirty little secret of the bourgeois family, then the the analyst gets to 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 LARP as one of the little dirty members and share in that secret and try to uncover it and put it to light. There is a kind of when you start deconstructing maybe a little bit and, and twisting, it does start to make the analyst look a little bit more sinister. But I don't know if you had one quote maybe in particular that you wanted to bring up. You mentioned something that conjured the idea of like, well, both, I guess, the my mystic writing pad from Freud. Yeah. I mean, this was a while ago in your little talk there. If I could pinpoint exactly what it is now, but there was something that conjured that thought as well as, I guess, the notion of the inscription surface. But I don't know if I can really put a pin and i don't know if you if that's i do think that you're right that the, go back to the mystic writing pad has is almost a variation on the theme of a more sophisticated variation on the theme that i was talking about with uh the reprints based on original plates it is interesting that that was it actually so good job <laughs> right i mean I, I do think that the the metaphor, the analogy in the mystic writing pad becomes much more intricate and complex. And that'd be a great text for us to to talk about at some point. I mean, we could spend a whole episode talking about it, honestly, because it's very 
And I think Derrida has some great reflections on it. So if we wanted to, that could be an episode because I think the Mr. Writing Pad is only yeah, it's 12, a fairly short pages. Yeah, it's a pretty short piece. Less than twenty. Yeah. And I think Derrida has a, a short piece on it that would be interesting to pair with it. But yeah, I mean, it's the notion of obviously the notion of the unconscious as an inscription surface is itself very fascinating. And and Freud derives a, a number of hypotheses from his little, let's say, thought experiment of the different surfaces, the different layers in the mystic writing pad of consciousness, pre-conscious, unconscious. He develops some cool hypotheses or maybe confirms them through the thought experiment that of, of something he had before, one of which that always struck me as interesting where the excitations and consciousness can't be sort of perceived and recorded in the unconscious at the same time. So there's almost, it's almost like a, like a, a sphincter, if you will, comes down and like one of them is going to dominate the other is not, which is why in dreams, as the ego sort of lulls to sleep and consciousness, excitations from consciousness are withdrawn, the unconscious comes out to play, right? Like, I think that that's, again, a, a nice little corollary of this idea that, and also why he thinks about repetition, blah, 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 blah. But we can leave that for another time. And if you want, we can maybe just, maybe just call it if you feel like we, we've talked about a lot of the themes. I can't remember if I read this at the beginning when I was kind of, because I didn't, hadn't planned on necessarily bringing up the Deleuze and Guattari component of, right uh, with regard to sublimation, but I just want to at least maybe put a pin on that with just this direct quote from Freud from the P, from one of the pieces. Psychoanalysis shows us that those persons whom in real life we merely respect or are fond of may be sexual objects to us in our unconscious minds still. Right. So that would go towards the fact that the social is already infused with libidinal desire or libidinality mm -hmm. with regard to everyone, I suppose, right? Everyone insofar as well, I we, guess right. We, we, he's, we, I mean, he specifically says respect, are fond of, etc. Yeah. Like those positive feelings, I suppose. You know, it's interesting, right? Where it's I just think about how this might be left field. I think about how Guattari talks about like faciality traits. He's like, you've seen my face. I've seen yours now. No matter what, one little feature or one little trait is going to like infiltrate the matrix of your like facial processing or whatever. And I'm just thinking about how like, yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, it's kind of like that with all the people we sort of uh, interact with. It doesn't even have to be on. It could be like the day's residues where you might pass some some girl in the in the streets and it can like you might dream about her later that night where it's just almost like that slight interaction precisely because it wasn't meaningful or extended or um you know because we weren't really aware of it or only passively aware of it that even then we can have these unconscious desires precisely because they are kind of bubbling up to the surface without our you know any of our any effort on our part and they need a kind of container they need some kind of vessel with which to like actualize themselves so that we can even become aware of it and like become conscious of it so 
it could be either as the quote you just read people we respect or are fond of but it could also be people <laughs> we don't even know that today we were at brunch and some girl showing a lot of her midriff walking by and i was just kind of like i was kind of like okay that's that's a look but who knows i mean i consciously saw her and was kind of like all right i you do you girl but who knows i could i could dream about her tonight and that uh i might be resisting an attraction that i uh want to consciously state i don't have you never know right i mean that could betray us that's that's part of the interesting thing and what the, the the analyst is trying to bring out with the unconscious material is that even in the transference the patient's always going the pa the patient despite themselves and in in and in and with their resistance is going to betray their quote unquote secret they're going to betray those that infantile source material they're going to give up the the stereotypes those plates that freud thinks like we got to get back to the first edition and see what what's been what's been covered over what's been masked by the series of these displacements onto later contingent figures it's as though there is a kind of archaic fixed stable reference and i think that that's the only thing we need to not the only that's one of the things we need to be wary about when freud uses that metaphor that kind of falls apart if we put some pressure on it which i already worked through just saying like stating there's some sort of absolute origin for each person's individual sort of a matrix of of love formation i think that that's that that should be just deconstructed and and criticized I would like to read this final this uh, quote from Antiedipus, and then just to put a pin on this discussion of, you know, what we've been going on about with regard to sublimation and the social and desire, etc. Um, for anyone that's interested, we have difficulty understanding what principles psychoanalysis uses to support its conception of desire when it maintains that libido must be desexualized or even sublimated in order to proceed to the social investments, and inversely that the libido only resexualizes these investments during the course of pathological regression. Unless the assumption of such a conception is still familialism, that is, an assumption holding that sexuality operates only in the family and must be transformed in order to invest larger aggregates. I don't know, that just kind of puts a pin, you know, direct quote from Antiedipus that kind of ties the room together, so to speak, with regard to that aspect, with regard to transference and how desire is already suffusing the social, right. not just within these familial Oedipal relations, but like your example goes, it can be any sort of open, open signifier maybe, or something like yeah. that. The empty signifier that can take on any, any shape or any accent that it needs to, given the contingency of the situation. I think that that's why Jung kind of says something, you know, Deleuze Guattari are right to kind of say, like, why is it that Freud wants or thinks that the analyst is going to play the, the role of the father? Isn't that, doesn't that already conceal a type of ideological preconception of what analysis is to do, what the cure is to do? 
the cure is to for Freud because he's precisely maybe in his mindset able to take on that role for a multitude of different individuals and patients he thinks of the analyst as as being the father so what you need is a good father you need you need a a father who's going to to listen to you and to be understanding and if not give in to obviously those feelings of love at least by way of working through the material give a kind of validation the love from the father that supposedly or mother he does say it could be a mother because i because freud did believe in consistency of bisexuality so freud needs to be a good parent let's just say freud wants to play the role of the good parent for the patient and it's kind of a trick right because i think it's already preloading what the transference is going to lead to in the cure where it's like no i'm actually not your parent but what we what we did learn something about your unconscious cathexis of the image you have of your parents. And so that can get us back to these events in early childhood. And then we can reconstruct the original uh, constellation of psychical events and fucked up shit so that we can get to the individuality of your, your libidinal disposition and why there's something that's not working. So I think that that shows us a vision of what analysis can do. And I think that, 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 you know, that, it can easily lead to the cure being, well, if I work on myself in this manner, really what I need to be is a good child, a good, a good son, a good boy. And not only Dr. Freud, but society as a whole will, will finally give me the love that I need, right? It, it, it becomes a little bit infantilizing, which I think is not what Freud is going for. And so I would just to give play devil's advocate and give him some credit. I think that for Freud, it would be that even if we're playing this father role, we can't play that role too hard. We can't overplay the role. We're still not saying good job, son. Or, I love you. I love you, son. Right? Like there's still this thing where the analyst has to hold back from that type of gratification. So it's a very strange father, maybe not even as perverse as the Liz and Quattri are, are making it out to be. It is a very strange, unloving father, but it has to be unloving in a way that perhaps our real fathers were unloving. It's very strange. So, um, but in any case, I think that it's uh, it's good to think about these things. And it's good that You've emphasized the fact that transference is a general social phenomenon. It really took the analytic situation to, to crystallize it and give us an ability to, to understand it. It's um, how it works. I think maybe perhaps without the psychoanalytic situation, we would still be talking about these kind of things in a, in a more obscure, less conceptual way. That's a great coda to the discussion. I mean, I just want to also, before we close out the episode, just mention, this is why I just love reading these Freud cases and Freud broadly, because I feel like the discussions just become so rich because there's so many little fun jumping off points into other things. I mean, obviously it helps that, you know, our interest in 
Dylan's and Guattari's work, certainly, um, because they're so their work is grounded in Freud that it makes it a little bit fun to kind of draw those kind of not to get like back into the uh not troglodyte sort of <laughs> it's mm -hmm. almost but yeah. it almost is that in a kind of metaphorical fashion let's say but uh yeah. i think that will wrap up this week's edition of the machinic unconscious happy hour with cooper cherry and taylor atkins we will see y'all next week of including the ultimate form of security, which is unconscious. In the old state of things, a cure of violence without object This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. What I meant is the following. With nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, Lobotomized people, as in uh, block work orange.